Have you ever noticed how hard the Christian life can be? I don't mean hard in the sense of trials and tribulations, though that certainly is is part of it. That comes with the territory. But I mean hard in the sense of difficult. And when I say hard in the sense of difficult, I don't mean it's hard because there are so many things to do, so many boxes you have to check, so many hoops you have to jump through. What I'm trying to say is that the Christian life can be very hard because it's not always easy to know what to do or what the Lord would have us do in a given situation in life. Life is complicated. And because it is, we don't always know exactly what the best thing to do really is and what the Lord would want us to do in this given situation. Let me mention some specific examples or illustrations. Just recently, on the same day, and that's why I made note of this, on the same day, I had three people ask me about situations they were facing in their lives and how they should respond or how that, you know, the Lord would maybe want them to respond. One situation involved a lady from our church who saw on Facebook that an old high school friend was getting married. This high school friend claims to be a Christian. She's been divorced a couple times. One of the divorces was on biblical grounds. The other was not on biblical grounds. So this lady from our church was wondering if she should say something to her old high school friend, even though they haven't talked for months. What would the Lord want in a situation like that? Here's the second scenario I was asked about on the same day. A gentleman from our church asked if he should say something to another Christian acquaintance, not really a close friend, but a Christian acquaintance, who is very sincere in his walk with the Lord, but he ends up making statements that are hurtful or offensive to other people. How much do you step into a situation involving someone who is just an acquaintance? Is it your responsibility to say something, or are you giving advice and input that hasn't been sought or hasn't been requested? Here's the third scenario I was asked about the very same day. A gentleman from our church became aware of a lady in our church who, sadly, tragically, was living a double life. However, the man became aware of the information because his wife was trying to help another lady who was trapped in sin. And this lady mentioned the other lady who was also trapped in sin. So the lady that the wife was helping was in no position to go to this other lady to address her double life and how damaging that is to the name of Christ. You say, hold on, hold it, I'm lost. I can't keep the story straight. It's too confusing. Well, that's exactly my point. Life is complex. And that's part of what makes the Christian life difficult at times. We want, hopefully this is true, we want to live a life that pleases the Lord. We want to live the way He wants us to live, and we we want to do what He wants us to do, but it's not always easy to know exactly what He would want us to do in all of the complex situations of life. Often there is a fine line between what is good and what is not good. For example, it is good to want to help people, and it's good to want to rescue people from sin, but it's not good to be hypercritical. 
And it's not, to, it's not good to be a bull in a china shop by jumping into situations without having the wisdom to do things the right way. On the other hand, it's good to be patient with people and long-suffering. After all, the Lord is that way with us. But it is not loving to stand by and watch people destroy their lives or watch them destroy other people's lives by their sin and wrong choices. That's not really loving. However, you and I both know that if you do feel compelled to say something to someone or address something in someone else's life, there is a very good chance that you will be accused of being unloving and judgmental, especially with the day and age in which we live. As a result, many Christians refuse to ever say anything to anyone about anything wrong in their lives, and they justify their unwillingness to obey Scripture by saying that they don't want to be judgmental. And here's what complicates all of this even more. It is often true that the people who ought to be concerned about being judgmental are completely oblivious to that character trait in their lives. And the people who are afraid of coming across that way often should have more willingness to speak to situations in which they are silent. Now do you, do you see why I say that there is often a fine line between what is good and what is not good and that the complexity of life can sometimes make it very difficult to know exactly what the Lord would want us to do in each and every situation in which we are confronted. Let me illustrate this further by having us turn to Philippians 1 by way of introduction this morning. We're going to resume our series through Mark, but I want to just probe this topic a little further because it is, it is a lead-in, a valid lead-in to our text in Mark, Mark's gospel. But look at Philippians chapter 1. <clears throat> Philippians 1, I'll begin reading in verse 15. And by the way, depending on your translation, if you have a NASB, ESV, NIV, it's going to read a little differently. In fact, a couple of the verses are flip-flops, so just you'll need to read ahead one verse when I read and back one verse when I read. You'll see what I'm saying. Verse 15 in the version I'm using says, Some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. And here's where the shift in the translations. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. It is very important that we understand what Paul is dealing with in this section of Scripture because I'm afraid that many people don't know, and in fact, this is one of the most commonly misused passages of Scripture in the New Testament. I have heard people use this passage many times to say that we should never, ever say anything against people or churches or ministers or ministries that teach false doctrine. The comment that usually follows is we should just rejoice like Paul did that at least they are talking about Jesus. That's the most common way people take this passage. A few years ago, we had a family leave our church 
over this very issue. And when people in our church family, including myself, reached out to them to talk to them about why they left, they said they left because occasionally I would mention a group or a person by name in my sermons and tell that their teaching wasn't accurate and warn about that. You see, some people believe it is wrong. They believe it is unloving to do that. And many of those people try to use this text as support. They will say something like this. But Paul rejoiced when people preached things he didn't agree with. So should we. Don't be so narrow. Don't be so dogmatic. At least Jesus is being preached, even if everything that's being said about him isn't true and is inaccurate. That is how so many people take this passage. So in order to get it clear in our minds, let's start by seeing what this passage is not talking about. What it is not saying. It is not. It's undeniable. There's no question here. It is not talking about rejoicing when people preach and teach error or false doctrine or inaccuracy. Paul never rejoiced in error. Paul never rejoiced in people preaching error. In fact, in this very same letter, we see his attitude toward those who promoted doctrinal error. Just skip over to chapter 3, and you'll see in the opening verses, Paul says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. It's safe. In other words, this is a good warning. I know I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. It's a good warning. It's a safe warning. Beware of dogs. Uh, obviously, he's not talking about four-footed creatures here. Beware of dogs. Beware, beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation what is Paul talking about? He's clearly talking about the Judaizers who gloried in circumcision and said you had to be circumcised if you were a man to be saved. And he calls them the mutilation and he contrasts them by saying in verse 3, for we are the true circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Paul drew a sharp contrast between himself and those who taught error. In verse 2, he gives a sober, sober warning, and he called these false teachers dogs, evil workers, and mutilators. And skip down to verse 17 of the same chapter. He says, Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and I'll tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. You don't see any rejoicing in that passage. Again, I say, Paul never, please hear this, Paul never rejoiced in error or in those who promoted error. In fact, in verse 18, he says these people were enemies of the cross of Christ. And when Paul says these things, he's talking about people who were preaching and teaching religion. People who were talking about Jesus. He's not just saying this about people who are outside of the realm of religion and simply teach in the secular realm. He's talking about religious leaders, religious teachers. 
In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul referred to some people as false apostles, deceitful workers, and Satan's ministers. There's no rejoicing there. And listen to what he says in Galatians 1. I'll just read it to you. Back just a couple letters from Philippians. Listen to this. Galatians 1 verse 6. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Now he's talking about people who promote a gospel. He says, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached you, let him be accursed. Let him be damned. Now hold it. Did I misread that, Paul? Did I... Now, mistake what you said, next verse. As we have said before, so now I say again, just so you don't think you heard it wrong. If anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be damned. That shows you Paul's attitude toward inaccurate teaching of the gospel of Christ and his, his attitude toward false teachers. Paul says, let them be accursed, let them be damned. In 1 Timothy 4, he refers to the teachings of people who distort God's truth as the doctrines of demons. Those are strong words to express Paul's attitude toward distorting the truth. In 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4, Paul uses strong language to express the importance of preaching the truth and not error. He calls error fables and myths. And he says people who listen to that error just want to have their ears tickled. So you see, beloved, Paul never advocated, please understand this, he never advocated putting up with false doctrine. By the way, neither did John, the apostle of love. 2 John 10 says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, the one he's talking about, the kind of doctrine he's talking about, true doctrine, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. You see, there is a healthy and righteous kind of dogmatism. Paul and John both taught that, as well as Peter and Jude and the rest of the writers of the New Testament. I mention all these passages because it's extremely important that we not make the critical mistake of thinking that in verses 15 through 18 of Philippians 1, Paul is rejoicing in inaccurate teaching about Christ. Three times in Philippians 1, Paul emphatically states that these people he has in mind were preaching Christ, they were preaching the truth about Christ, they were preaching accurately about Christ. So the detractors in Philippians 1 were preaching the truth. Then what was their error if it wasn't in doctrine? Their error was in their motives and their attitudes toward Paul. That's the issue in Philippians 1. So what is Paul saying here in Philippians 1 when he says he rejoiced when people preached Christ, whether in pretense or in truth? Look at Philippians 1 again, verse 18. He says, what then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. The word pretense here in this verse means false motives. And the NIV translates it that way, and properly so. This doesn't mean they were pretending to believe the gospel 
or it doesn't mean that they were pretending to preach the gospel. No, these preachers that Paul has in mind here believed the gospel and they preached the gospel, but their motives were not pure. Motive is the issue all the way through here, not content. Let me say that again. Motive is the issue all the way through this text, not content. And since the doctrinal content was solid, Paul could rejoice even though some had the motives of trying to win followers away from him to themselves. That's what was going on here. These people were preaching the gospel, preaching the truth, preaching it accurately because Paul's in prison and here was their chance to sort of pull his followers away to become their followers. Now Paul didn't rejoice in their motives, but he did rejoice that they were preaching the truth about Christ. He didn't, pre, he didn't rejoice that they were creating strife or division in the body of Christ because this undoubtedly brought him great grief. He didn't approve of envy, jealousy, or causing strife, but he did rejoice that Christ was being preached and being preached accurately. He knew that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. He knew that the message of the gospel of Christ is powerful if it is preached accurately, even when it is preached from a heart that has wrong motives. Now, that doesn't make it right. Paul doesn't excuse or justify the attitudes of these preachers. But he did rejoice that the truth about Christ was being preached, even though the truth about himself wasn't being told. This is a tremendously insightful passage to consider and meditate on and think about because it brilliantly illustrates what I talked about earlier regarding the fine line between something that is good and something that is not good. It is not good to rejoice in error. It's not good to approve of error. It's not good to minimize error. But it is good to rejoice in the truth in the proclamation of the truth, even if the motives of the person sharing the truth are not what they ought to be. And what an illustration of the difficulty of knowing where to draw lines and not draw them in the Christian life. This was something that the disciples of Jesus needed to learn. They didn't always know where to draw the lines. They didn't always know where to take a stand like us. Sometimes they didn't take a stand where they should have taken a stand. And I could show you passages in the Gospels where they didn't take a stand where they should have taken a stand. And other times they took a stand where they didn't need to take a stand. We see a unique example of that in the text to which we come this morning. Let's turn with this as background to Mark chapter 9 as we resume our series through Mark's Gospel. Mark chapter 9. And please follow along. As I read verses 33 through 41, although we already covered verses 33 through 37 in the last message, but I want us to have the context of the text we're going to consider. Verse 33, then Jesus came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked his disciples, what was it that you discussed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent. For on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, 
called the twelve and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now John answered him, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us, casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him. For no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. The reason why I began reading back in verse 33 even though we already looked at verses 33 through 37 in the last message, is because this entire section is a unit. The theme of this section is humility. You could just write that over that entire section we just read. The main point that Jesus is trying to make throughout these verses is the importance of humility and the attitude of servanthood. It was prompted by the fact, as we just read, that the disciples of Jesus were arguing over who was the greatest. In response, Jesus taught them a lesson about humility and servanthood. He said to them in verse 35, or verse 35, Mark tells us, and he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. When Jesus sat down, that would have gotten the attention of the disciples. That was the posture of a rabbi who was about to teach. That was the posture of a rabbi who was about to say something very important. So this would have signaled the disciples that Jesus was about to teach them something very important. And what was it? Jesus directed their ambition towards servanthood. He basically said to them, men, if you want to be great... You're arguing over who's the greatest. If you want to be great, you want to stand out, you want to excel, do so as a humble servant. That was a radical statement. That was totally contrary to their culture, just as it is totally contrary to our culture today. True greatness, as measured by our Lord, is in humility and servanthood. It's not in power and prominence and authority. Jesus says, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. There's no glory in that. There's no honor in that. There's no exaltation in that except from the Lord. His way is diametrically opposed to the world's value system. It's diametrically opposed to the world's way of thinking. He has outlined the course or the path for us. And then he illustrated it in verse 36. He took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Jesus took a little child in his arms and pointed to this child as an object lesson to drive home his point. 
The Greek word here indicates a very little child, perhaps a toddler. Why would Jesus use a child? Because a child is the perfect illustration of several characteristics that ought to be in our lives. For example, little children are often completely trusting. That's the way we ought to be in relation to God. Little children are often humble, especially in comparison to older children and adults, many of whom believe they are omnicompetent. As an illustration of this fact, it's not uncommon to hear little children say, if you ask them to do something or encourage them to do something, they say, I can't do that, even if you know they can do it, whatever it is. So little children are often completely trusting, often humble. And here's another one. Little children are in some ways helpless and dependent on others to take care of them. In the same way, there's a sense in which we are helpless and dependent on our Heavenly Father, and the sooner we recognize it, the better off we are. I'll mention one more. Little children don't have much strength. They are weak, especially compared to young people and adults. They don't have the mental or physical ability to be the movers and shakers in society. They really can't be the bigwigs or the stars. That's why Jesus often used a little child as an illustration. Complete trust, humility, helplessness, a lack of exceptional ability are often seen in little children. And that's why Jesus called this little child into their midst to illustrate his point. And he said in verse 37, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. That's not what the disciples wanted to hear. They didn't want to hear Jesus talking about receiving children. They they, they wanted to do great things in life. They wanted to be the greatest. That's what they were discussing, arguing. They, They wanted to interact with the movers and shakers of society and not children whom they considered to be relatively insignificant. They wanted to do things that were big, things that were significant. So Jesus tells them here, That receiving a child in his name is significant. It is so significant that Jesus equates it with receiving him and with receiving the Father. The person who receives a little child because of Jesus is in essence receiving Jesus himself. As the Lord was saying all of this, it evidently raised a question in John's mind about something They had done on their journey from up north in the region of Caesarea Philippi down to Capernaum. Remember, prior to this, if you go back to verse 33, it says, Then he came to Capernaum. Because prior to that, they had been way up north in Israel, up near Caesarea Philippi. They made this long journey down to Capernaum. And on the way, something happened. And this teaching of Jesus jogged John's memory. It stirred his memory of what had happened, and so he brings it up to Jesus to get his perspective. Verse 38. Now John answered him, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. It is very likely that John mentioned this incident because he was beginning to understand what Jesus was just saying. He was beginning to get it. He was putting the pieces together. As Jesus talked about the importance of humility, John began to see his pride. 
he remembered an incident in which he and the other disciples came across someone who was casting out demons in Jesus' name. Now, who was this guy? Why do you ask questions like that? I read the same Bible you do. (laughs) I have no idea who this guy was who was able to cast out demons, but I do know that there was an occasion when Jesus sent out 70 workers and he gave them power to cast out demons. So that lets us know that Jesus didn't only give this special power to the 12. There were others to whom Jesus also gave this power at times, and evidently this was one of those guys. So what that tells us is that this was no fake. This was no phony. This was a true disciple of Jesus who had been given the power to cast out demons, but he wasn't one of the 12, and that's what bothered John and the others. He wasn't in their group. He wasn't from their group. So they told the guy that he had to stop. John and the other disciples evidently saw this guy as competition in ministry. And they didn't want any competition. In their pride, now remember what Jesus was just teaching on that prompted John to bring this up. Jesus had just been teaching on humility, selflessness. Being like a little child, and wow, all of a sudden John realizes his heart is exposed, and he realizes, you know, in our pride, when we had this experience with this guy, in our pride, we wanted to be the exclusive ministers of Jesus. We didn't want anybody else doing this. Understand, this was not a concern about someone misrepresenting Jesus, because John clearly told Jesus That this other guy, I mean, John said it this way, this other guy was casting out demons in your name. So he was doing the right thing in the right way, and he got his authority from the only person who could have given him that authority, which was Jesus. So my point is this. There was nothing wrong about this situation. This guy wasn't misrepresenting Jesus, and he wasn't doing this to profit from people's hardship. In other words, hey, give me, you know, a thousand shekels, I'll cast out the demon from your child or something like that. And he wasn't doing this to promote himself. He was simply doing the right thing in the right way, and he got his authority from Jesus. So there was no reason why John and the other disciples should have told him to stop. If he had been misrepresenting Jesus, or if he had been taking advantage of people, or if he had been promoting himself, then it would have been right for the disciples to resist him or tell him to stop. But he wasn't doing any of those things. There's nothing wrong with what he was doing. The problem was not in what the guy was doing. The problem was in the hearts of the disciples. In their pride, they wanted to be the exclusive ministers of Jesus, and they saw this guy as competition. So Jesus corrected them. Verse 39. But Jesus said, do not forbid him. For no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil against me. Jesus set the record straight. He told his disciples that they were wrong for forbidding this man to carry out this legitimate ministry that the Lord had given him. And let me emphasize that this was a legitimate ministry. 
This was not some phony who claimed to be doing things in Jesus' name. There's been a lot of that down through the centuries and still is today. A lot of people who are claiming to do things in Jesus' name. But this was someone who was actually doing genuine ministry as a legitimate representative of Jesus. He was not doing it for self-glory. He was not doing it for profit. He wasn't doing it to take advantage of other people. He was humbly, I mean, they just happened to bump into this guy. He didn't have, you know, big notoriety. He was just humbly doing what Jesus had enabled him to do. I'm emphasizing this because there have always been phonies, and there are many today who claim to do miracles in Jesus' name, And they prey on undiscerning people who give them millions of dollars. Jesus spoke of those kinds of false representatives when in Matthew 7, 22 and 23, he described the scene at Judgment Day. He said that there will be many, don't miss that word, that's his word, Jesus' word. He said there will be many who will say that they had cast out demons in his name, and he will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So Jesus is not suggesting here, please don't take this passage the wrong way. He's not suggesting here that we be undiscerning and gullible and fleeceable, if that's a word. He is talking about a true Christian who humbly serves the Lord by ministering to other people. Not for fanfare, not for notoriety, not for money, not to take advantage of other people. No, a true believer who humbly serves the Lord by ministering to other people. And he basically says this, don't forbid him. Don't forbid him, man, just because he's not in your group. Don't be pridefully exclusive. If he's doing the right thing, the right way, then he's on our team. Even though he's not following along with us in our group, he's on our team. And so in verse 40, Jesus says, For, let me expand this a little further, for he who is not against us is on our side. Jesus is expanding their perspective. He is trying to get them to see that if the guy is on target, if he's true, if he's genuine, then they shouldn't see him as a competitor. There should be no competition like this among believers. When there's this kind of competition among true believers, true servants of Christ, it's motivated by pride, which is the issue that Jesus was just dealing with. However, let me hasten to add Because I know how some Christians take this the wrong direction. So please hear this. The Lord is not saying that everyone who does anything in the name of Christianity or anyone who claims to be a servant of Christ is doing the right thing. There are some people, some ministers, some ministries that do things that are not pleasing to the Lord. Let me give an obvious example, and I only mention this one because it's so easy to discern. It's so obvious. I saw recently that there was a church in another state that advertised that they were going to show an X-rated film at church to draw people into the church, and then afterwards they were going to use that opportunity to give people the gospel. 
Now, anyone with any discernment knows that's ridiculously wrong. Totally unacceptable. But listen, beloved, there are other issues that are not as obviously wrong, but they still are wrong. They still are wrong. So again, I want to emphasize that Jesus is not saying here to his disciples that it is wrong to evaluate ministry. It's wrong to critique ministry. After all, Jesus himself had some of, not some of, the strongest words, his strongest words were directed against the religious leaders of his day who promoted error. And he critiqued what they said and evaluated the way they lived and he called them on the carpet and called them out in public and told his disciples, don't be confused by them. So Jesus is not saying it's wrong to assess things biblically. He's just saying that we shouldn't be so exclusive that we demand that everyone has to be in our club. There is diversity in the kingdom. There is diversity in the family of God. Everyone doesn't have to dot every I and cross every T exactly the way you and I do. You see, there's a fine line There's a very fine line between discernment and exclusivity. Discernment is encouraged repeatedly in Scripture. It's a good virtue, one that is needed more more than ever today. Discernment's a good thing. Exclusivity is not. Discernment is a good thing, but exclusivity is not because, for one thing, pride is at the root of exclusivity. So don't expect or demand that when it comes to ministry, everyone has to do everything exactly the way you would do it or the way you do it. The true story is told about an occasion when a man came up to D.L. Moody after one of his evangelistic crusades and criticized him for the way he was doing things. And the man said, I don't like how you're doing this. I don't agree with this at all. I don't, I don't like this. And D.L. Moody responded by saying, well, how do you do it? If you don't like the way, how, how do you do it? Well, the man kind of stammered and stuttered around because he didn't really have much of an answer because he didn't have any plan or idea of a better way to do it. He really wasn't even involved in evangelism in any way. And so D.L. Moody said to him, you know, I like the way I'm doing it better than the way you're not doing it. <laughs> that was a great response. Everybody doesn't have to be in the same club as long as we are doing the right thing, the right way, with the right authority, which is the Lord's authority and not our own self-appointed authority. So Jesus closes out with these words, verse 41. He says, for, let me explain this even further, man. Let me explain this. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name... That is, because you belong to Christ, assuredly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. In other words, those of us who truly know the Lord and are doing the right thing the right way are all on the same team. Instead of competition, there should be care and concern for one another. This is so important to the Lord that he says here he will reward anyone who even does something as small as giving a cup of cold water to those who belong to him when it's done for the reason that they are his. Let me say it this way. When someone loves the Lord so much 
that he loves the Lord's servants so much that he ministers to them with a cup of water, the Lord will reward that act of service done in his name. That's the kind of perspective and attitude the Lord wanted his men to have, which is why he took this occasion to warn them against prideful exclusivity. And it's the same kind of perspective and attitude that the Lord wants us to have also. To not be so prideful that we resist anyone because of our pride and see them as competition. That is so, it's obvious, that is so displeasing to our Lord. Discernment, yes, absolutely. Exclusivity, no, unacceptable. Let's bow together as we close. As we bow our heads together in closing this morning, take just a moment or two to reflect and think about your own life and evaluate and wrestle with your own heart. Maybe, maybe it's not exactly in this way, but you, you and I both know, we all know that we wrestle with pride, all of us in one way or another. That's the issue that Jesus was getting at, the, the pride of his disciples, that they would see this person as a competitor rather than as a, a teammate. So again, ours may not come out in exactly the same way, but we, we always have to be on guard for pride, how it would manifest itself. And that's at the heart of this warning that Jesus gives to his men. Many, many times in his ministry, he encouraged them to be discerning, to be careful, to not just believe everything the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees said, to to be discerning, to be careful. But at times, like on this occasion, they would swing the pendulum too far the other way and draw lines where they didn't need to be drawn. So it's a reminder to us that we need to seek the Lord's wisdom. Life is complicated. Life is is difficult to, to wicker through sometimes and to navigate. And we need the Lord's wisdom for where to draw those lines. Discernment, yes. Prideful exclusivity, no. Father, as we close this morning, we do pray that you would, we, we call on you. We, we are mindful of the, the statement in James in the context of trials, but certainly the principle applies beyond that. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally. And we acknowledge that we lack wisdom. We lack wisdom in our trials, but we also lack wisdom just in, in the, the daily issues of life. Life can be so difficult to navigate and so complicated sometimes. And we can really relate to the disciples here how, how they just, there were times when they drew lines where they shouldn't have and other times where they didn't where they should have. And we We've surely done the same thing. So grant us your wisdom. Grant us your discernment. But at the same time, grant us humility that we would not be characterized by a prideful exclusivity. Grant us to be able to, to, to live that life, that, that balance that's right between the extremes on either side that are wrong, a hypercritical spirit or a lack of discernment on the other side, just so easy to, to go in the ditch on one side of the road or the other and, and not just stay on the path. So help us, help us. We call on you. We beseech you. We, we plead with you to enable us just to live the kind of life that would please you in all, the, all of the complexities of life. We pray these things for Jesus' sake and in his name.
Amen.